Hello and welcome to another special episode of the Good Friends of Jackson Elias. In a departure from our usual format, we are continuing our Christmas ghost story reading of The V by Nikolai Gogol, organised by our good friend Mike Percival-Maxwell. This is the second of four parts, and you can expect parts three and four to turn up on the podcast feed on the 21st and 24th of December. Let me once more introduce our readers. Dom Allen. John Casey. Sarah Dovey. Rena Henzi. Mike Percival Maxwell. Sue Savage. And Scott Dorwood. Well, the bells of the old church's clock tower are ringing out, so without further ado, we present The V by Nikolai Vasilievich Gogol, Part 2. About this time, a report spread about that the daughter of a rich colonel, whose estate lay about fifty versts distant from Keefe, had returned home one day from a walk in a quite broken-down condition. She had scarcely enough strength to reach her father's house, Now she lay dying, and had expressed a wish that for three days after her death the prayers for the dead should be recited by a Keefe seminarist named Thomas Brutus. This fact was communicated to the philosopher by the rector of the seminary himself, who sent for him to his room and told him that he must start at once, as a rich colonel had sent his servants and a kibitka for him. The philosopher trembled, and was seized by an uncomfortable feeling which he could not define. He had a gloomy foreboding that some evil was about to befall him. Without knowing why, he declared that he did not wish to go. "'Listen, Thomas,' said the rector, who under certain circumstances spoke very politely to his pupils. "'I have no idea of asking you whether you wish to go or not.' I only tell you that if you think of disobeying, I will have you so soundly flogged on the back with young birch rods that you need not think of having a bath for a long time. The philosopher scratched the back of his head and went out silently, intending to make himself scarce at the first opportunity. Lost in thought, he descended the steep flight of steps which led to the courtyard, thickly planted with poplars. There he remained standing for a moment and heard quite distinctly the rector giving orders in a loud voice to his steward, and to another person, probably one of the messengers sent by the colonel. Thank your master for the peeled barley and the eggs, and tell him that as soon as the books which he mentions in his note are ready, I will send them. I have already given them to a clerk to be copied, and don't forget to remind your master that he has some excellent fish, especially prime sturgeon in his ponds. He might send me some when he has the opportunity— as here in the market the fish are bad and dear. And you, Yantuk, give the colonel's man a glass of brandy. And mind you tie up the philosopher, or he will show you a clean pair of heels. Listen to the scoundrel, thought the philosopher. He has smelt a rat, the long-legged stork. He descended into the courtyard and beheld there a kibitka, which he at first took for a barn on wheels. It was, in fact, as roomy as a kiln, so that bricks might have been made inside it. It was one of those remarkable Krakow vehicles in which merchants travelled from town to town in scores, wherever they thought they would find a market. Six stout, strong, though somewhat elderly Cossacks were standing by it. Their gold-braided coats of fine cloth showed that their master was rich and of some importance, 
and certain little scars testified to their valour on the battlefield. Oh, what can I do? thought the philosopher. There is no escaping one's destiny. So he stepped up to the Cossacks and said, Good day, comrades. Welcome, Mr. Philosopher, some of them answered. Well, I am to travel with you. It is a magnificent vehicle, he continued as he got into it. If there were only musicians present, one might dance in it. Yes, it is a roomy carriage, said one of the Cossacks, taking his seat by the coachman. The latter had tied a cloth round his head, as he had already found an opportunity of pawning his cap in the alehouse. The other five, with the philosopher, got into the capacious kibitka and sat upon sacks which were filled with all sorts of articles purchased in the city. I should like to know, if this equipage were laden with salt or iron, how many horses would be required to draw it? Yes, said the Cossack who sat by the coachman after thinking a short time. It would require a good many horses. After giving this satisfactory answer, the Cossack considered himself entitled to remain silent for the whole of the rest of the journey. The philosopher would gladly have found out who the colonel was, and what sort of character he had. He was also curious to know about his daughter, who had returned home in such a strange way and now lay dying, and whose destiny seemed to be mingled with his own, and wanted to know the sort of life that was lived at the colonel's house. But the Cossacks were probably philosophers like himself, for in answer to his inquiries they only blew clouds of tobacco and settled themselves more comfortably on their sacks. Meanwhile, one of them addressed to the coachman on the box a brief command. Keep your eyes open, Averko, you sleepyhead, and when you come to the alehouse on the road to Chukrailov, don't forget to pull up and wake me and the other fellows if we are asleep. Then he began to snore pretty loud. But in any case, his admonition was quite superfluous, for scarcely had the enormous equipage begun to approach the aforesaid alehouse than they all cried with one mouth, Halt! Halt! Besides this, Averco's horse was accustomed to stop outside every inn of its own accord. In spite of the intense July heat, they all got out and entered a low, dirty room, where an innkeeper received them in a friendly way as old acquaintances. He brought in the skirt of his long coat some sausages and laid them on the table, where, though forbidden by the Talmud, they looked very seductive. All sat down at table, and it was not long before each of the guests had an earthenware jug standing in front of him. The philosopher Thomas had to take part in the feast, and as the Ukrainians, when they are intoxicated, always begin to kiss each other or to weep, the whole room soon began to echo with demonstrations of affection. Come here, come here, spirit, let me embrace thee. Come here, Darosh, let me press you to my heart. One Cossack with a grey moustache, the eldest of them all, leant his head on his hand and began to weep bitterly, because he was an orphan and alone in God's wide world. Another tall, loquacious man did his best to comfort him, saying, Don't weep, for God's sake, don't weep, for over there, God knows best. The Cossack who had been addressed as Dorosh was full of curiosity and addressed many questions to the philosopher Thomas. I should like to know what you learn in your seminary. Do you learn the same things as the deacon reads to us in church or something else? Don't ask. Let them learn what they like. 
God knows what is to happen. God knows everything. No, I will know. I will know what is written in their books. Perhaps it is something quite different from that in Deacon's book. Oh, good heavens, why all this talk? It is God's will, and one cannot change God's arrangements. I will know everything that is written. I will enter seminary too. By heaven, I will. Do you think perhaps I could not learn? I will learn everything. Everything. Oh, heavens! exclaimed the consoler, and let his head sink on the table, for he could no longer hold it upright. The other Cossacks talked about the nobility, and why there was a moon in the sky. When the philosopher Thomas saw the state they were in, he determined to profit by it, and to make his escape. In the first place, he turned to the grey-headed Cossack, who was lamenting the loss of his parents. Oh, but little uncle, why do you weep so? I too am an orphan. Let me go, children. Why do you want me? Let him go. He is an orphan. Let him go where he likes. They were about to take him outside themselves, when the one who had displayed a special thirst for knowledge stopped them, saying, No, I want to talk with him about the seminary. I am going to seminary myself. Moreover, it was not yet certain whether the philosopher could have executed his project of flight, for when he tried to rise from his chair, he felt as though his feet were made of wood, and he began to see such a number of doors leading out of the room that it would have been difficult for him to have found the right one. It was not till evening that the company remembered that they must continue their journey. They crowded into the kibitka, whipped up the horses and struck up a song, the words and sense of which were hard to understand. During a great part of the night, they wandered about, having lost the road, which they ought to have been able to find blindfolded. At last, they drove down a steep descent into a valley, and the philosopher noticed, by the sides of the road, hedges behind which he caught glimpses of small trees and house roofs. All these belonged to the colonel's estate. It was already long past midnight. The sky was dark, though little stars glimmered here and there. No light was to be seen in any of the houses. They drove into a large courtyard, while the dogs barked. On all sides were barns and cottages with thatched roofs. Just opposite the gateway was a house, which was larger than the others, and seemed to be the colonel's dwelling. The kibitka stopped before a small barn, and the travellers hastened into it and laid themselves down to sleep. The philosopher, however, attempted to look at the exterior of the house, but rub his eyes as he might, he could distinguish nothing. The house seemed to turn into a bear, and the chimney into the rector of the seminary. Then he gave it up and lay down to sleep. When he woke up the next morning, the whole house was in commotion. The young lady had died during the night. The servants ran hither and thither in a distracted state. The old women wept and lamented. A number of curious people gazed through the enclosure into the courtyard, as though there were something special to be seen. The philosopher began now to inspect the locality and the buildings, which he had not been able to do during the night. The colonel's house was one of those low, small buildings, such as used formerly to be constructed in Russia. It was thatched with straw, a small, high-peaked gable, with a window shaped like an eye, was painted all over with blue and yellow flowers and red crescent moons. 
It rested on little oaken pillars, which were round about the middle, hexagonal below, and whose capitals were adorned with quaint carvings. Under this gable was a small staircase with seats at the foot of it on either side. The walls of the house were supported by similar pillars. Before the house stood a large pear tree of pyramidal shape, whose leaves incessantly trembled. A double row of buildings formed a broad street leading up to the colonel's house. Behind the barns, near the entrance gate, stood two three-cornered wine houses, also attached with straw. Each of the stone walls had a door in it, and was covered with all kinds of paintings. On one was represented a Cossack sitting on a barrel and swinging a large pitcher over his head. It bore the inscription, I will drink all that. Elsewhere were painted large and small bottles, a beautiful girl, a running horse, a pipe, and a drum bearing the words, Wine is the Cossack's joy. In the loft of one of the barns, one saw through a huge round window a drum and some trumpets. At the gate there stood two cannons. All this showed that the colonel loved a cheerful life, and the whole place often rang with sounds of merriment. Before the gate were two windmills, and behind the house gardens sloped away. Through the treetops, the dark chimneys of the peasants' houses were visible. The whole village lay on a broad, even plateau, in the middle of a mountain slope which culminated in a steep summit on the north side. When seen from below, it looked still steeper. Here and there on the top of the irregular stems of the thick step brooms, showed in dark relief against the sky, the bare clay soil made a melancholy impression, worn as it was into deep furrows by rainwater. On the same slope there stood two cottages, and over one of them a huge apple tree spread its branches. The roots were supported by small props, whose interstices were filled with mould. The apples, which were blown off by the wind, rolled down to the courtyard below. A road wound round the mountain to the village. When the philosopher looked at this steep slope, and remembered his journey of the night before, he came to the conclusion that either the colonel's horses were very sagacious, or that the Cossacks must have very strong heads as they ventured, even the worse for drink, on such a road with the huge kibitka. When the philosopher turned and looked in the opposite direction, he saw quite another picture. The village reached down to the plain, meadows stretched away to an immense distance, their bright green growing gradually dark far away, about twenty versts off. Many other villages were visible. To the right of these meadows were chains of hills. In the remote distance, one saw the Dnieper, shimmer and sparkle like a mirror of steel. Oh, what a splendid country, said the philosopher to himself. It must be fine to live here. One could catch fish in the Dnieper and in the ponds, and shoot and snare partridges and bustards. There must be quantities here. Much fruit might be dried here and sold in the town. Or better still, brandy might be distilled from it, for fruit brandy is the best of all. And what prevents me of thinking of my escape after all? Behind the hedge he saw a little path, which was almost entirely concealed by the high grass of the steppe. The philosopher approached it mechanically, meaning at first to walk a little along it unobserved, and then quietly 
gain the open country behind the peasants' houses. Suddenly, he felt the pressure of a fairly heavy hand on his shoulder. Behind him stood the same old Cossack who yesterday had so bitterly lamented the death of his father and mother and his own loneliness. You're giving yourself useless trouble, Mr. Philosopher, if you think you can escape from us. One cannot run away here. And besides, the roads are too bad for walkers. Come to the Colonel. He's been waiting for you for some time in his room. Yes, yes. What are you talking about? I will come with the greatest of pleasure, said the philosopher, and followed the Cossack. The colonel was an elderly man. His moustache was grey, and his face wore the signs of deep sadness. He sat in his room by a table with his head propped on both hands. He seemed about five and fifty, but his attitude of utter despair and the pallor on his face showed that his heart had been suddenly broken and that all his formal cheerfulness had forever disappeared. When Thomas entered with the Cossack, he answered their deep bows with a slight inclination of the head. Who are you? Whence do you come, and what is your profession, my good man? asked the colonel in an even voice, neither friendly nor austere. I am a student of philosophy. My name is Thomas Brutus. And who was your father? I don't know, sir. And your mother? I don't know either. I know that I must have had a mother, but who she was and where she lived, by heavens, I, I do not know. The colonel was silent and seemed for a moment lost in thought. Where did you come to know my daughter? I do not know her, gracious sir. I declare I do not know her. Why then has she chosen you and no one else to offer up prayers for her? The philosopher shrugged his shoulders. God only knows. It is a well-known fact that grand people often demand things which the most learned man cannot comprehend. And does not the proverb say, dance, devil, as the Lord commands? Aren't you talking nonsense, Mr. Philosopher? May the lightning strike me on the spot if I lie. If she had only lived a moment longer, then I had certainly found out everything. She said, let no one offer up prayers for me, but send, Father, at once to the seminary in Keith for the student Thomas Brutus. He shall pray three nights running for my sinful soul. He knows. But what he really knows she never said. The poor dove could speak no more and died. Good man, you are probably well known for your sanctity and devout life, and she has perhaps heard of you. What? Of me? The philosopher took a step backwards in amazement. I in sanctity? God help us, gracious sir, what are you saying? It was only last Holy Thursday that I paid a visit to the tart shop. Well... She must at any rate have had some reason for making the arrangement, and you must begin your duties today. I should like to remark to your honour, naturally everyone who knows the Holy Scripture at all can in his measure, but I believe it would be better on this occasion to send for a deacon or a subdeacon. They are learned people, and they know exactly what is to be done. I have not got a good voice, nor any official standing. You may say what you like, but I shall carry out all my dove's wishes. If you read the prayers for her three nights through in the proper way, I will reward you. And if not, 
I advise the devil himself not to oppose me. The colonel spoke the last words in such an emphatic way that the philosopher quite understood them. Follow me. They went into the hall. The colonel opened a door which was opposite his own. The philosopher remained for a few minutes in the hall in order to look about him, and then he stepped over the threshold with a certain nervousness. The whole floor of the room was covered with red cloth. In a corner, under the icons of the saints, on a table covered with a gold-bordered velvet cloth, lay the body of the girl. Tall candles, round which were wound branches of the Kalina, stood at her head and feet, and burned dimly in the broad daylight. The face of the dead was not to be seen, as the inconsolable father sat before his daughter, with his back turned to the philosopher. The words, which the latter overheard, filled him with a certain fear. I do not mourn, my daughter, that in the flower of your age you have prematurely left the earth, to my grief. But I mourn, my dove, that I do not know my deadly enemy who caused your death. Had I only known that anyone could even conceive the idea of insulting you, or of speaking a disrespectful word to you, I swear by heaven he would never have seen his children again, if he had been as old as myself, nor his father and mother if he had been young. And I would have thrown his corpse to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the steppe. But woe is me, my flower, my dove, my light. I will spend the remainder of my life without joy and wipe the bitter tears which flow out of my old eyes while my enemy will rejoice and laugh in secret over the helpless old man. He paused, overpowered by grief, and streams of tears flowed down his cheeks. The philosopher was deeply affected by the sight of such inconsolable sorrow. He coughed gently in order to clear his throat. The colonel turned and signed to him to take his place at the head of the dead girl before a little prayer desk on which some books lay. I can manage to hold out for three nights, thought the philosopher. And then the colonel will fill both my pockets with ducats. He approached the dead girl and, after coughing once more, began to read without paying attention to anything else and firmly resolved to not look at her face. Soon there was deep silence, and he saw that the colonel had left the room. Slowly, he turned his head in order to look at the corpse. A violent shudder thrilled through him. Before him lay a form of such beauty as is seldom seen upon the earth. It seemed to him that never in a single face had so much intensity of expression and harmony of features been united. Her brow, soft as snow and pure as silver, seemed to be thinking. The fine, regular eyebrows shadowed proudly the closed eyes, whose lashes gently rested on her cheeks, which seemed to glow with secret longing. Her lips still appeared to smile. But at the same time, he saw something in those features which appalled him. A terrible depression seized his heart, as when... In the midst of dance and song, someone begins to chant a dirge. He felt as though those ruby lips were colored with his own heart's blood. Moreover, her face seemed dreadfully familiar. The witch! He cried out in a voice which sounded strange to himself, 
Then he turned away and began to read the prayers with white cheeks. It was the witch whom he had killed. So concludes the second part of The V. Please join us next time for part three, in which Thomas Brutus spends his first night offering up prayers for the colonel's daughter. <laughs>